0: I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord and ask his guidance on our time of study this morning. Our Father, what a privilege it is that we have our own copies of your word in our language to read, to study, to meditate on, that you have revealed yourself in such a way that that we are able to come to know you more fully through that which you have revealed and that no matter how much we study, no matter how much we meditate, no matter how much we probe the depths of your word there is still so much more to learn and to to understand there's so much more so many more ways in which we can grow spiritually and your character can be manifest in our life and in our uh in our witness now father we pray that as we study today and as we reflect on your word that this would not just be an academic drill but that it may increase our understanding of your magnificent abundant grace toward us and the purpose and that we may come to know the purpose for which you have uh, have for us in this life and that we may be able to pursue that more diligently and we pray this in Christ's name amen open your bibles with me this morning to ephesians chapter 1 Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. And we'll start with the review there. And this morning, we're going to get into the mystery doctrine uh, related to this revelation. A very important teaching of Scripture related to what is revealed about the uniqueness of this church age, the uniqueness of our position in Christ the uniqueness about this new entity, this new organism called the body of Christ where Jew and Gentile are united together in this one body of Jesus Christ for, a, for many specific purposes within this church age. Uh, Just to review you a little bit as we were wrapping up this last week, in him, in Ephesians 1-7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence or discretion as we studied last time. This verse focuses our attention upon the wealth that we are given in Christ, the super abundance of grace and this is something that is difficult for us to probe, and it stretches our our thinking because God has given us so much as Paul began this section with the statement that He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. We have been given a super abundance of grace. Now to understand this, we really have to go back to the beginning. We have to go back to the creation, so important. And if you are watching the news, paying attention to the culture war that is going on, not just in the United States, But this impacts the whole world. You have such increased hostility to Christians today. You've had the uh, murder and execution of untold thousands of Christians in Nigeria uh, by Islamic jihadists. You've had uh, many Christians uh, murdered, assassinated, executed in, uh, in Syria, in Iraq, in the Middle East, You have a war against all religions taking place in China, and there have been uh, untold probably hundreds of thousands who have been imprisoned and executed there. Uh, And in the United States, we see a rising hostility to Christianity, to those who hold to biblical values, biblical ethics. And just the very fact that you and I exist and we believe there are people, well-organized, well-financed people who seek to shut us down, to uh, end our, our influence in this country and in this nation, and this war is all part of a much grander war against God that we know began with the fall of Satan in eternity past. And God created us as human beings and it's described in Genesis 1, 26 to 27 to play a vital role in this angelic warfare that has spilled over into all of this uh, hostility that we see in human history and in our own times. Man was originally created, according to Genesis 1, and 27, in the image and likeness of God. We were a finite representation of God not physically, but in terms of our immaterial makeup, the makeup of our soul, our ability to to think, to understand, to communicate, to create, to uh, reflect who he is and to learn about him. And then on the basis of that, learning about him, rule over his creation. That was the purpose of the of God's creation as described in Genesis 128. Man was created male and female, male and female equally in the image of God, and they were created righteous. Now it was an untested righteousness, but nevertheless it was perfect righteousness. They were in the image of God. They were righteous, they were just in their uh, creaturely state. And they were designed to stay that way. That was God's purpose and God's intent. Now, something we haven't talked much about, but in that state of righteousness, in that state of perfection, in that state of intimate fellowship that they had with God as image bearers of, of his divine nature, they were not recipients of God's grace. They benefited from God's goodness, but not from his grace. Remember how grace is defined. Grace is God's undeserved merit, his unearned kindness. It's unearned because it can't be earned, because the recipients of God's grace are not worthy of his kindness or of his goodness. So fallen creatures uh, must receive grace. We are dependent upon God's grace, but unfallen Adam and Eve were perfect and grace and mercy from God were unnecessary because they were in a state of of absolute perfection. But once they sinned, they became the objects of his grace. Their very survival depended upon God's grace and being objects of God's grace, as is true for us today. The air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat, Uh, all of the cycles of agriculture that come every year are all under the control of God and are part of what theologians call God's common grace. But God's grace extends far beyond that as we're seeing in Ephesians chapter 1. We have seen that God's plan for recovery, a plan of redemption, was known by him in eternity past. We see this stated several times in Ephesians chapter one that it was from eternity past that he knew this plan. It wasn't a time when he didn't know the plan, because of God's omniscience, he's always known everything. Nothing comes as a surprise. Nothing is uh, is. Nothing happens that he hasn't prepared for. He's designed a perfect, a, a perfect plan, and so their sin was not a surprise to him. It was not an impediment to his purposes, but in it, actually in the way he designed everything, because of the extent of his omniscience, it enabled him to fulfill a purpose that could not be fulfilled unless there were creatures who were the recipients of his grace. For apart from fallen creatures who would be recipients of his grace, there would be no way for God to demonstrate those facets of his love, those facets of his character. Sin, which is so abhorrent to God, it is contrary to everything that he is. It, it is, uh, It violates every aspect of his being, was permitted by him to come into the world for a purpose. It was allowed on the basis of God's wisdom and to... And and discernment in order to achieve his purposes and to make his manifold grace known not only to human beings but also to the angels. We are witnesses by the way we live as Christians to his grace. In the Old Testament, they were witnesses also to his grace, but the grace is manifested differently today in terms of who we are as church-age believers. The solution that God designed for sin would call upon God to make the ultimate sacrifice. He would provide the sacrifice that would pay the penalty for sin. He would send the second person of the Trinity with whom he had had an intimate relationship beyond which we cannot even imagine. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And yet God the Father designed that there would be a judicial disruption in this relationship by sending the second person of the Trinity to die on the cross and to bear our sins. Scripture says, he who knew no sin was made sin for us, such that that is the only time in the midst of all of that physical pain on on the cross and the torture that preceded it, that's the only time Jesus cried out, is when... The sin of the world comes upon him and that impact upon that righteous, divine, second person of the Trinity was more than we could, could imagine. And because the impact of sin was such that it extended to every atom, every molecule in the universe, God had designed a plan of salvation that would extend into all of the complexities of his creation. It's not just about getting us to heaven. It's about a redemption of all of his creation in all of the uh, intricate complexities of the corruption of sin. So God had to demonstrate his grace through all of this to his angels in the midst of that angelic conflict in the fall of Satan. And he had knew that in doing this, he had to manifest his grace under a variety of conditions. That's why we have these different dispensations. Each one sets up things a little differently. And God is demonstrating his grace in every category of of possi- possible scenarios. So that's why in the dispensations there are different responsibilities, but salvation is, is always the same uh, by grace through faith. And he demonstrates his grace as history moves forward. And as history moves forward, so too does God's revelation. So there were things that, as we talked about a little last time, that were not revealed in the Old Testament, that are now revealed. That's what we're getting into as we talk about the mystery that is now revealed. There are different aspects to the mystery of what God is doing in the church age, and we'll talk about the senses of that word and its significance. But above all, the mystery was designed to take the revelation of God's grace to a much higher uh, level than was ever manifest before. So in grace, he provided a payment for sin, a payment for sin that was more than sufficient. It was abundant, it abounded, and it provided not only redemption for all mankind in paying the sin penalty, but it provided that which would be the basis for the spiritual life, not only in past dispensations, but as it's manifest in this present Uh, dispensation so that we now have in Christ redemption, forgiveness of sin, and a salvation that's available to every human being and a unique and distinct spiritual life. Beyond that, God's plan was to demonstrate his goodness through a new people that would be developed in this church age, distinct from God's people in the Old Testament. He had one plan for Israel, he has one plan for the church age. And that all of this will eventually culminate in the glorification of himself and of the Lord Jesus Christ as the ruler over this redeemed creation. In a future age. That's what we're coming to in verse 10 in the dispensation or administration of the fullness of time, looking forward to its resolution in the uh, millennial kingdom. And so, as church age believers, we have a distinct role in Christ. That's our privileged position. And eventually, those who live well in obedience to the Lord and mature will have different responsibilities ruling and reigning with the Lord Jesus Christ in that future age. And that in itself is beyond anything that we can possibly imagine. So all of that has brought us to this critical section in verses 9, 10, and 11 that we find ourselves in where Paul continues his thought in verse 9 saying, Having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. All of that is reflecting to the inner thinking, the omniscience of God in this uh, intricate plan and complex plan that he has put into effect to provide the the individual soteriological redemption of every human being, but also to provide for the redemption of his creation that even today is still under the bondage of corruption. We looked at this word briefly last week, the word translated made known, nerizo, which focuses on revelation. I went through various passages from Old Testament. Uh, It's usage in the Septuagint translating various words, uh, Hebrew words that indicate the giving of revelation ...on into the New Testament where it is used a number of times to indicate uh, God's revelation to us. And so that's the focal point here. It is related to God revealing objectively his will and plan and purpose to us in his scripture... This is not some sort of mystical, internal, intuitive insight. It is a focus upon that which God specifically, objectively reveals, as we'll see through the apostles and prophets in this church age. It is uh, described here as the mystery of, of His will, the mystery of His will. This is an important term to get into, and it is a distinctive word for the revelation given in the Church Age related to what God is doing with with the Gentiles and Jews. Specifically, in the context of Ephesians, it's related to the unity of Jew and Gentile together in the body of Christ. His use of this word is also uh, sort of an apologetic rebuke to the mystery religions that were so popular in the Greek culture at that time. Mystery religions are built on a mystical understanding of knowledge, that somehow the man is able to intuitively. Uh, on, uh, reach certain conclusions and come to certain insights not on the basis of rationalism or empiricism, but on the basis of irrationalism, just some sort of intuitive uh, insight. When we hear the word mystery, often we think of it in terms of its most popular uh, connotation in our society where we think about certain kinds of movies or certain kinds of books, It's uh, described in Webster's as a term that can refer to cloak-and-dagger type novels or movies. It can refer to a closed book. We don't know what's in the book, a conundrum, an enigma, a problem, a puzzle. All of these are different words that are synonyms of the word mystery. It can refer to a secret or something else along those lines. The Oxford English Dictionary, says that it first me- gives us the first meaning, something that is difficult or impossible to understand or explain. And so it has to do with something secret, something obscure. Uh, it uh, can refer to a person or thing whose identity or nature is puzzling or unknown. That's how we normally use that term in terms of like reading an Agatha Christie mystery or watching uh, the... Series mystery on PBS, something of that nature. It can refer, in that same sense, to a novel, a play, or a film in terms of its genre. And then, third, it refers to the secret rites of an ancient or tribal religion to which only initiates are admitted. Now, none of those definitions apply to what the scripture, how the scripture uses the term. And that's why it's so important at times to go back to to the original languages and to look at things. And one of the things that we have to do is we look at the basic ideas in the uh, scriptural use of mystery is this is not the same as mysticism. You ru- I've run into this and had uh, conversations about this over the years because there's a similar route that people think that mysticism and mystery are somehow related, and, and they are not mysticism as defined in the Oxford English dictionary uh, primarily the first meaning is a belief in or experience of a reality surpassing normal human understanding or experience in other words it's not based on reason it's not based on on personal objective experience with something but it is a a an intuitive insight To reality, that those who have this believe it's essential to some uh, aspect of life. So, that takes us to a chart that I've used many times to try to explain this that there are basically four ways that we come to know anything. When you ask somebody, How do you know that? they make some statement, you say, Well, how do you know that? Well, somebody said it, or I heard it in a book, or something like that, but there's basically only four ways. And there, they've been around since the ancient Greeks identified these uh, in as far back as four or 500 B.C., but they've been there since the beginning of creation. The first system is known as just rationalism. The starting point is the idea that we have certain innate ideas, and just by the use of our reason alone on the basis of, of logic... We can arrive at the answers to life's most important questions. So it 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 ultimately is based on faith. It's not reason versus faith. You will often hear that. That is ju- that's illogical, because all reason, all rational systems, are all predicated on um, on faith. Faith in the finite human mind to reach infinite conclusions or conclusions about infinite matters. Okay? How can that happen? But that is their assumption, is that man is able to come to these answers without any outside information at all. And that you have the ancient world with Plato and in the modern world with Descartes and rationalism failed in the ancient world, failed in the modern world, because it just can't get outside of the finite boundaries of human thought. Then we have empiricism. Empiricism rejects the idea of innate ideas. Uh, We have Aristotle made the statement tabula rasa somewhat famous. It's an empty slate. We're born that way and we just have input from our senses. What we see, hear, taste, touch, all of these are inputs and then we build on that. But again, we have these sense perceptions, but we organize them, categorize them, we uh, come to knowledge, and it's ultimately a faith in human ability to properly interpret what we're experiencing. It's also based on the independent use of logic and reason. Now, both of those are often combined, and we call that the scientific method where we use both together. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, are Adam first, is given the responsibility to name, to categorize, to identify all of the animals. So in, in the brilliance of his thinking, I believe he had an IQ far beyond anything that any human being has today or anyone historically that we know of. He was created perfect, and he had a mind that was untainted by corruption of sin. And he's observing all of these animals and naming them in light of his observations. That's empiricism. He's using reason to do so. And he goes through all of the animals that are there in the garden, and he's classifying them and naming them and coming to certain conclusions, one of which is they all seem to be paired up, but I don't have a mate that is comparable. That would have dawned upon his consciousness as he went through that. But... Then God tells, has told him that all of the fruit of, that's in the garden is good to eat, so he knows that. But God said one other thing. He said there's one tree you can't eat from, and that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the instant that you do, you'll die. Now, there is no way that Adam could have discerned that on the basis of either his reason or his experience. There are some facts that we can only know through God's revelation, and they are the critical pieces of information that help us to understand and organize, properly interpret everything else. That without that one piece of information, if God had just put him in the garden without telling him that, the, that he would die when he ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would have had no idea what was going on. His observations were true to a point, would have been true to a point, but then uh, without that one piece of revelatory information, his, his organization of the data would have been flawed. And that's what happens when man tries to understand what he calls nature apart from God is he observes a lot of things that are true, but his overall understanding, organization, and interpretation is flawed because he has excluded revelation uh, from that. But mysticism is totally different. In the ancient world and in the modern world, both rationalism and empiricism failed to provide the answers to the eternal questions. Where did we come from? Is there a future life? Uh, Ultimately, where do we get the values of right and wrong? Is there meaning in life? How do I discover meaning? The the major questions we ask cannot be found on the basis of either rationalism or, or empiricism alone. That comes only from revelation. But historically what happens when rationalism and empiricism fail, they're followed by skepticism. We can't know the truth. And so then we just make things up. And we think that we, if we can't get it objectively, then it must be subjective. And this is called mysticism. It comes from what I call inner light, that there's a private experience. And as a result of this private experience, this, this intuitive insight, they come to truth. It is not based on reason. In fact, it is often irrational. It's not logical. They reject logic. See that's where we're living today. Postmodernism, which came into uh, into existence as a replacement to modernism, modernism was based on rationalism and empiricism and logic, but postmodernism, which comes into play in the early twentieth century, uh, doesn't really make the popular level until the post World War II era, is based on irrationalism. Reason and logic could not provide the answers to life, so if that's, if that's true, then we have to find the answers on the basis of irrationalism. And this is a, a, the essence of what happens with postmodernism. But now we've gone even further than postmodernism. Now we have a variety of things that are on the scene, uh, identity politics, uh, where, you, where everything is described in terms of what the group is assigned uh, its value, its significance, and the more uh, of a minority your group is, the better you are. And if you don't have enough involvement with different minority groups, then then you're just discredited no matter what. It, it's, it's the ultimate, maybe not the ultimate, we may have another stage in irrationalism. And many people are frustrated. How do you talk to people who reject logic itself? They just make things up out of whole cloth and say this is true because it's true. And it's a, it's a complete lie. And they can't even discern truth from error anymore. This is what happened in the ancient world. It happens in the development of all paganism. As, as Isaiah con- condemned them, they are calling good evil and evil good. They completely polarize and, and reverse the, the, the elements of right or wrong. Human ability can only go so far, but we must have revelation. We must have an objective revelation where God tells us the way things are, and then we live on the basis of that. It is not in place of logic or reason, but we use logic and reason under the authority of God. It is a dependent, not an autonomous or independent use of logic or reason. In the ancient world, followed this same pattern. You had the rise of ra- the rationalists and, and followers of Plato. Then you had the rise of empiricism and the followers of Aristotle. This is followed by a skepticism and mysticism and the rise of the mystery religions, the worship of, of the Sibyl, Attis cult and Dionysius and various other Uh, mystery religions of the ancient world that appealed to uh, emotion and exacerbated emotion, and they use various things. For example, in the Dionysian worship, he's also the god of wine, so you use wine to get into contact with that which is the eternal. And then if you're uh, really spiritual, he'll speak through you, and that was glossolalia. And there's a lot more that we could go into there, but you get the main idea. Paul is talking in a completely different context than what was dominant in the thinking of the of the Greco-Roman world at his time. And Ephesus is a location for the for various popular mystery religions including the worship of Dionysius. And so when he makes this statement that God has made known, he's talking about an objective knowable revelation that is verbal and propositional that people can know and it has been written down and that runs completely counter to the thinking of everybody in that culture and he says he made known to us now who's the us here this i think is also important because he, when you look at most commentaries he's talk they they think that he's using us in chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2 to refer to us believers. But there's no place, if you carefully read through Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2, there's no place where the us changes its meaning. When you get into the latter part of chapter 2, the us is clearly Jews, Jewish, and in his context, he's talking Jewish believers. In contrast to the you, second person plural, which is talking about Gentiles, and the us and the you are joined together now in one body. That's what Paul covers in chapter 2. So when he says by making known to us, he's talking specifically about the Jewish apostles in Acts 1 through 11. And it's in Acts 10 and 11 that God reveals to Peter in that tremendous episode where he's praying. He's at the house of Simon the Tanner in Joppa, and he's praying, and he has this vision, and he sees this this big tablecloth being lowered from heaven. And on this tablecloth, you have all manner of unclean animals. You have uh, pigs, you have catfish, you have lobster, you have all these Animals that you can't eat under the Mosaic Law, and God says, "Sit down and eat." And and Peter said, "No, I'm I'm kosher. I, I've always followed the law. I'm not going to eat." Three times, God takes him through this, and and he just keeps thinking in terms, "This is trafe," and and uh, trafe means non kosher, and Peter won't touch it. And then God says, "What I have said is clean is clean." Now the point that he's making is that right after this messengers from a Gentile, no Orthodox Jew, no law-following Jew like Peter would go to the home of a Gentile. You would become unclean if you did so. And so God is preparing Peter for what's going to happen next. These messengers from Cornelius, the Roman centurion, are going to come to him to invite him to come to talk to these Gentile uh, uh, proselytes to Judaism. And so God says, what I've declared is clean, is clean, and Peter finally gets the point. So when the Gentiles come, he goes with them, and he goes to Caesarea by the sea, and there he proclaims the gospel. They become believers in Jesus Christ, and they enter in now to the body of Christ. So this is that revelation, having made known to us Jewish Apostles at the beginning of the church age, the mystery that previously unrevealed information uh, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in us. So when we look at this word mystery, the main idea that we have in mystery in, in Ephesians it relates to this teaching of the joining of Jew and Gentile together in one body, so that Jewishness. And Gentileness are no longer a factor in relation to God. In the Old Testament, under the Torah, only Jews, only Levites could go, and only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. Only Levites could get into the inner part of the of the of the tabernacle and then the temple. And only Jews could get past a certain point. In fact, there's the courtyard of the Gentiles on the outer part of the of the temple grounds and there was a low wall and a marker there that gentiles could not proceed beyond that point gentiles could not have as close a relationship with God under the mosaic law as they do now there's a distinction it's not because Jews were better or gentiles were worse it was that God had a specific plan Jews, and it was distinct from the plan that he had for Gentiles in the Old Testament. But now things were going to be different. And so God, uh, our, uh, Paul begins to explain this, and we see the definition of this mystery in Ephesians 3, 3, and 5. He says, how that by revelation, this is objective revelation of God to Peter, to the other apostles, and to Paul. I think that's impo- important. He says here that by revelation he made known to me the mystery. Okay, there's a specific revelation. We see the revelation of Jesus reveals himself to Paul on the road to Tarsus in Acts chapter 9, but we also know that there was other revelation that God gave specifically to Paul. But this mystery isn't unique to Paul. I think that's an error some dispensationalists have made in the past, that Paul was the only one to get it, because he goes on to say it's made to the apostles and prophets, not just to him, although it was made specifically to him as well. How that by revelation, he made known to me the mystery. So what revelation does is it discloses New information that previously was unknown, unrevealed, and some use the term secret and in that sense it's, it would also be secret because God had not yet disclosed that to human beings. This relates to what is going on in the church age. Now, there are some who do not believe in uh, this the dispensational understanding of scripture. And they think that the mystery just refers to the salvation of the Gentiles. The problem with that is that there are numerous passages in the Old Testament that speak of a future time when the Gentiles will be uh, coming to uh, God and will be saved. So that wasn't a mystery. That was clearly revealed in the Old Testament. This is talking about something distinct, and that is the unity of Jew and Gentile In the body of Christ, verse five says, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men. That's a clear, bold statement. God did not reveal this to anyone in the Old Testament, this mystery that he's talking about, as it has now been revealed by the spirit. Now, the as there makes it appear as if it was revealed in some sense, but not in the same sense that it is now. But what I'll point out later is that there's a direct parallel to this in Colossians, and in Colossians it has the word but. Now, the Greek word as can also have that connotation of but, and it must be uh, exegeted that way in this passage or else you have a complete contradiction between the Colossians parallel and Ephesians 3.5. But what do we know about mystery? How do we understand that? Well, this Greek word mysterion was used in the Septuagint to to translate uh, Hebrew words that are translated like secret, something that had not been revealed. We see it used several times in Daniel. Daniel 2, 18, 19, 27, 28, 29, 30, and 47. This is all uh, in relation to the vision of, that are the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, and so I just put a couple of verses up here. Uh, and Daniel two eighteen says that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret, that is, this mystery. What and it's, it's the meaning of what was in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. What did this mean? And so it's new revelation. So, that Daniel's companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon, then the secret, that is, the mystery, was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So, this tells us that this mystery is something that is revealed. It's something that was not previously known, but now is known. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 9, you have a similar scenario, and <clears throat> verse 9. We read Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, that's uh, the uh, Babylonian name given to Daniel is Belteshazzar, uh, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you, this is Nebuchadnezzar speaking to Daniel, and no secret troubles you. Now, here, Nebuchadnezzar knew the dream, but he doesn't know what it means, and so he's asking Daniel to go to his God to find out what this revelation means. Means, So there we get from the Old Testament a clear understanding of the concept that it relates to previously unrevealed information that has now been revealed uh, to a prophet, to a an apostle, to a writer of Scripture. Now, a parallel passage, we read this in our Scripture reading this morning, a parallel passage that we have to understand what we're reading in Ephesians 3, 1 through 6, as well as uh, the reference to mystery in our passage in Ephesians 1, 9. It's called the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. So again, see, this is where it doesn't say as, it says, but now. It's clear contrast. It hasn't been revealed at all, not in little bits and pieces. It hasn't been revealed at all. So it's a clear statement in Colossians 1.26, but it is, has now been revealed to his saints, not through some sort of in, internal, intuitive, mystical insight, but through the objective revelation of God's Word. To them... Paul says, God willed to make known, again, we have our word that relates to revelation, what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So this adds a dimension to them that Gentiles here have this same reality of the indwelling of Christ in the Gentiles, just as in the Jews. Now let's go back to Ephesians chapter 3 because Ephesians 3 is the the section 3, 1 through 5 that really defines what this, the core of this mystery revelation in Ephesians chapter, in Ephesians as Paul first talks about in Ephesians 1, 9, and then he develops it at the end of this section. Remember Ephesians 1 through 3 are talking about our wealth in Christ. So he's introducing the concept in this uh, in this statement in Ephesians uh, one three to fourteen, and then he's going to expand it when he gets to the last part in Ephesians chapter three one through six. So he says, for this reason, I Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, notice here he's using you is Gentiles. So we are different. First person is different from second person. The second persons Gentiles, believers, the Ephesians. We must refer to Jews. So this is missed, I think, in, in most commentaries that I've studied. If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God. Now that's a New King James Version. You have uh, New American Standard, I think, translates it either, ad, they go back and forth. It's either stewardship or administration here. it's di- di- Dispensation or oikonomos is used in Ephesians 1.10. There, the New King James, uh, I mean, the uh, New American Standard translates it as, ad, as uh, administration. Here, I think it's, they translate it stewardship. All of these words translate the same Greek word oikonomos. We'll look at that in, in a minute. This is going to introduce us to the importance of biblical dispensationalism, that this is not something that was a theology that was uh, ginned up by John Nelson Darby and then imposed on the text. We're going to see as we go through Ephesians that this comes from the the text of Scripture. So if you've heard of the dispensation or the administration of, of the grace of God which was given to me for you. It's a stewardship, it's a responsibility, and we'll see the full meaning of the word in a little bit. How that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I've already briefly written, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men. So here he clearly is making distinctions that at some time in the past it wasn't made known, And it is known today. So there's a dispensational distinctive. There was a time when some things were not known. Now is a time when some things are known. In the Dallas Theological Seminary uh, doctrinal statement, they only identify three dispensations based on these passages in Ephesians. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't believe there are others. It's just that in a minimalist sense, that's what they had in the doctoral statement, a time in the past when people didn't know certain things, the present dispensation, and this future time of the fullness of times that's mentioned in Ephesians uh, 1.10. So he says, which in other ages were not made known to the sons of men as it is now, and it should be translated, but it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. See, that's, that's the idea. We're all one in Christ, that Ephesians 2 is going to be all... The second half of Ephesians 2 is all about breaking down that barrier. The cross broke down the barrier between Jew and Gentile so that in the body of Christ there's, there's not going to be any distinction. Now, in this slide, I'm comparing Ephesians three five, which says, "...in other ages it was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed." Colossians 1.26 says the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations but now has been revealed. So as I mentioned earlier, the uh, the Greek word host, which is translated as, is usually comparative, but there are two or three examples in the New Testament where it has a contrastive sense to it. And so that would be the way it's used here. And at, Paul wrote these two epistles very close together, and he's not contradicting himself. So this is, it should be translated in Ephesians 3, 5 the same way uh, you have a different word in Colossians 1, 26. Uh, so they should be translated the same as contrastive, but it has now been revealed. This is new information. And then we come to Ephesians Ephesians one ten. That purpose statement, in the dispensation of the fullness of times, that's future, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. So that tells us we're in a dispensation that is preparatory for a future time called the fullness of times where things will become completely resolved in Christ. He says everything, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. So we're going to have to get into a discussion. We'll reserve it for next time because we're running out of time already to begin a brief understanding of what dispensation refers to, what that term means, understanding this concept of dispensationalism and also looking at this future time. Fullness of times, I believe, refers to the future uh, millennium, the reign of Christ. There have been some different views among dispensationalists. uh, As we learned a couple of years ago at the Chafer Conference, Uh, Clarence Larkin took a different view. I'll talk a little bit about that and what I believe is a major weakness with that view and why it doesn't work scripturally. But it's important to understand this because ultimately this then leads to another concept that shows up in both um, in both Ephesians three and in Colossians, and that is the fact of our inheritance that we have in Christ, and that's what comes in verse eleven. So Paul very logically develops his thinking here that we have new revelation it was never revealed before there's a new entity the body of Christ there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile ultimately it is pulled together in this dispensation with a view to the ultimate resolution of the redemption of the universe in the millennial kingdom and it is then that we we realize our full inheritance in Christ. And so we'll come back to that next Sunday morning. Father, thank you so much for what you have revealed to us. It's not easy sometimes to work our way through some of these passages. There are so many different ideas because salvation just really isn't simple. It is in one sense. Christ died for our sins. He paid the penalty. All we need to do is trust in him. A two-year-old, a three-year-old can sometimes understand the simplicity of the gospel. But it is also much more complex than that because the sin problem is so complex and multifaceted and has impacted every atom, molecule, subatomic, submolecular particle in the universe. And yet you designed such a grand salvation that all is resolved. And in each dispensation, especially in this one, there are unique realities that pertain to the believer. And the church-age believer has been given and blessed with every spiritual blessing. Father, we need to understand those things, and we need to apply them in our lives and and realize their, their benefits and live on their basis. That's our new identity, our identity in Christ. Father, we also pray for those who may be listening, maybe here, who are uncertain of their salvation. They're not really sure how to get saved, what will happen when they die. But the scripture is very clear that we live once and after this, the judgment, that there is accountability and that the issue is not our sin because that was paid for at the cross. The issue is Christ. If we believe in him, then we will not be condemned. But if we don't believe in him, we are condemned already, as John says in John 3:18. And the only issue is believing on Jesus Christ. To trust in him and him alone, we will have eternal life. Now, Father, we pray you would make these things clear to us as we reflect on them uh, in the coming days and as we continue to study in Ephesians. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.